Hi, my name is Joshua Lingle, and uh, in this session, we want to cover Sharia law and society. What is a Muslim society like? And I want to begin with a scripture in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. It says that he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Of all the uh, Islamic issues, there's no single one that commands more instant attention than that of the Sharia or the Islamic law. The term is once a rallying point for Muslims who demand its application in the East and to spread as much of it as they can in the West. And yet, it's worth noting that there's some difficulty in defining the term Sharia, which basically means the way or the road. Um, uh, this is the way the Muslims should actually live their lives. Traditionally, the term Sharia included materials organized uh, into legal books by scholars according to traditional schools of law. They had the Hanafi school, which was predominant in, for example, the Middle East, in Turkey, in Central Asia, in South Asia. Uh, the Maliki school, predominant in North and West Africa. The Shafi school, predominant in East Africa and Southeast Asia. And the Hanbali school, predominant in Saudi Arabia, though promoted by Saudi, Saudi Arabia throughout the world with billions of their oil do dollars. Now, to this basic literature was added all of the legal discussions, commentaries, polemics, and opinions on many given subjects. And because Sunni Islam is based upon the Hadith literature, uh, in fact, I brought a, a book of the Hadith literature here. This is uh, one of the nine volumes of Sahih al-Bukhari, second only to, to the Quran itself. And so you can see within these, uh, this book uh, what a Muslim is to do and how he is supposed to actually practice his, his, his faith according to the Sharia. Now, uh, Sharia has a certain kind of chaotic aspect to these laws. Uh, it's marked by a lack of a final authority. There's nothing to stop uh, a traditional Sunni from switching from le one legal school to the other and from doing one thing according to one interpretation of one scholar <laughs> and then shifting over to a different scholar. Although it's not quite as uncontrolled uh, as that, there is no actual directing force behind its apparent apparatus of the Sharia. There's no final authority to say what is permitted and what is not. Only the consensus, or what's in Arabic called the ijma, of the scholars can tell a Muslim how to deal with new situations. And this is in accordance with the tradition that Muhammad had said that, quote, my community will never agree on an error, end quote. So that's a safeguard. Because the Hadith literature describes most life situations from, pre from the pre-modern period, uh, that the Sunni Muslim uh, could possibly encounter or think about, the creation of new law was curtailed rather, than, uh, rather severely in the later Middle Ages. Uh, the process known in scholarship is called the closing of the gates of ijtihad, or the uh, closing of the gates of interpretation. Um, any innovations called bida, bida is uh, with regards to the sunnah were forbidden and demonized. For this reason, the living locus of the Sharia came to reside more and more within a fatwa, 
or a fatwa is uh, usually associated with a death sentence you hear about in the media or something like that. But it's actually a solicited legal opinion from someone. People want to know from the scholars uh, what, what, the, uh, what the issues are of the day and how to apply it. And so the fatwa is basically a question that is asked of a senior religious figure, usually called a mufti, who has the qualifications to answer uh, and give an opinion that is binding only upon the person that's actually asking it. Fatwas have been useful for the creation of new laws and uh, that would normally possibly be seen as uh, innovations, the bida, but to avoid that, uh, they asked for these fatwas and it helps them to answer new situations that the Muslim community has to face. You could be, uh, again, uh, uh, driving a car in Saudi Arabia, but they didn't have cars in Saudi Arabia in the seventh century. So you may get a fatwa that says it's okay to drive a car similar to how it is to drive a camel in the seventh century and give an ijma or a consensus or an opinion around these issues. And so Muslim scholars would try and clarify and bring Islam into the modern day. However, it's clear from the present day that whatever residual authority structure there was in classical Sunni Islam has broken down and uh, completely under the pressure of the contemporary world. Today, fatwas are available, especially on the internet, in great quantities on almost every conceivable subject, as we'll see. It's difficult for contemporary Muslims to know which one to follow, and uh, some countries, such as Saudi Arabia, have actually cracked down on the uh, scholars and the unrestra unrestrained kind of scope of these internet fatwas. Uh, the fact is, is that there's probably no way, uh, short of some kind of uh, tough or draconian dictatorships, to actually curtail the behavior. So this chaos exists in tandem with renewed calls by radical Muslims throughout the world to implement the Sharia, implement the Sharia. However, it's important to, uh, not to confuse this implementation of the Sharia with the classical understanding. Radicals want to present the Sharia as an integral entity, as if it could be reduced down to one document. This is the Sharia here, deemed to be authoritative for all people. Now, I do have here an example of the very first law book that was ever written and it was actually written in 790 AD. We talked about it before, and it's the Muwatta of Imam Malik. And so Muhammad died in 632. So again, the first law book, uh, 160, uh, 632, 160 years after the time of Muhammad, the first law book. So these are all being worked out after Muhammad's death, and the Sharia was worked out in that Middle Ages. But the... The radicals want to present this idea that there is kind of a, of a one document that all Muslims can look to um, for the Sharia law. And fortunately, uh, or not, there, uh, there's, there's no such document uh, that Muslims can look to and say, this book here is the Sharia. Calls to implement the Sharia are highly impractical uh, by their very nature and amount to nothing more than to declare that the Sharia to be the basis for a given society. Uh, such calls are also a rallying cries for the establishment of domination of Islam over a given society, such as places as Nigeria. In the north, they have uh, 12 or 13 different 
states that are trying to implement the Sharia with the Muslim areas in the north. And yet the Christians don't have Sharia in the south. And so there's a battle that goes on there. The Sudan with uh, Turabi over the last 20 years and uh, with the um, uh, persecution that's gone on with some 2 million Christians that have died since 1983. And with Omar Bashir, who's tried to implement the Sharia over that country. And so there's this wrestling that goes on in society where the local, where the local Muslim community feels it to be either under an attack or wants to reestablish this traditional dominance or predominance over the country. Now, one needs to also realize that radicals are actually, through their writings, in the process of establishing what might someday become an actual singular Sharia uh, that will be divorced to some extent from the traditional concept and most especially from the four traditional schools of law, implementing it in the modern day. Sharia is, uh, Sharia, uh, is Islam distilled into a legal form and uh, posits three basic inequalities. Number one, the believer over the non-believer. Uh, number two, the male over the female. And number three, the free over the servants. These uh, inequalities ultimately have uh, come to pass because of the chronic vision of society, that it is not equal. The Quran says, say, is, this, uh, is the blind man the equal of one who sees? Or is darkness the equal of light? Or have they fashioned partners to Allah? who created something similar to his creation. And so creation became a matter that perplexed them." End quote. Surah 13, Ayah 16. Unequal is the blind man and the one who sees. Unequal, too, are those who believe and do good deeds, and those who are wicked, in Surah 40, Ayah 58. These inequalities are reflected in any interpretation of the function of the Sharia and are designed to present the Islamic society as one in which Muslims are very visibly favored, as they are, as it says in Surah 3, Ayah 110, quote, the best community ever brought forth among mankind, end quote. So Sharia societies. It's important to realize that Muslims consider an Islamic society to be a tolerant one. Uh, that's their vision when they talk about it and think about it. However, there is a, a difference between the sort of tolerance and equality that a non-Muslim desires inside a society and the sort that the Sharia-based society can actually offer us. From a Muslim point of view, uh, tolerance starts with the citation of the Quranic verse, quote, there's no compulsion in religion. Right guidance has been distinguished from error. He repudiates idols and believes in Allah, has grasped a handle most firm and unbreakable. End quote. Surah 2, Ayah 256. Now this verse is often cited by Muslims as being one that is normative in description of Islam as an ideal. The re research from Dr. Johanna Friedman in his, uh, his book, uh, Tolerance and Coercion in Islam, uh, Cambridge Press, uh, goes into the classical interpretations of this verse. And I want to go and, and think about this verse a little bit and I think it's important to think about the possible interpretations of it. First of all, the verse could be seen as a statement that there's no possibility of coercion within religion, as one can privately believe whatever one wishes, and there's no way that 
uh, an outside force can compel one to actually change one's beliefs and those held privately. This interpretation is far from the common Sharia prescription to kill an apostate for changing their religion. A second possibility is a more general trend which states that there is no compulsion in religion towards those religious communities such as the Jews and Christians who accept the demitude second level status accorded to them by the Muslims after they're conquered. One should understand that, quote, no compulsion in religion, end quote, was actually said to have been revealed at the time when Muhammad expelled the Jews of the Banu Nadir, the tribe of the Madir, the Nadir uh, from Medina. The point of the verse, according to exegesis, uh, classical exegesis, uh, is that those who were being expelled could choose whether to accept Islam or join the Jews in their exile. The second possibility is kind of tolerance of a sort, but it's confined to those who accept an inferior position in society and is not extended to pagan polytheists. A third possibility uh, takes the statement, there is no compulsion in religion, and joins it to the idea that Islam is right, everything else is wrong, and therefore there is no need to coerce people into following what's right. They'll come to their own accord. Now, one needs to stress that in spite of the verse, there's no compulsion in religion. There is ample evidence throughout Islamic history and in contemporary Islam that the people are regularly compelled to accept Islam and are placed in circumstances where they have no choice. Um, uh, people are compelled in uh, Northern Africa to convert to Islam. Orphans and so on are, are taken over and are taught Islam. Uh, slavery still went on in Upper Sudan and so on. So there is definitely compulsion that does happen in, a, in, uh, in the contemporary world. Um, Muslim apologists who regularly cite these verses ignore these realities and try and paint a very rosy picture for the church and those outside of Islam. Now the Sharia society is basically one that maximizes the freedom for Muslims to practice their faith with little outside foreign religious interference. The workday is built around the five prayers, the political leadership is also a religious leadership, and uh, the economic basis of society are the taxes that Muslims uh, level upon non-Muslims and those charity taxes that they pay as a part of the five pillars of Islam. In Sharia society, there's also the practical of enjoining the good and forbidding the evil, um, uh, which is one of the basis for the Muslim social order. The Quran says in Surah 3, Ayah 110, that you are the best community ever brought forth among mankind, commanding virtue and forbidding vice and believing in Allah. You can read Dr. Michael Cook's book on commanding right and forbidding wrong, Cambridge Press, that goes deeper uh, into uh, the historical and Islamic uh, interpretations of these issues. But enjoining the good and forbidding the evil is a proactive and kind of intrusive doctrine that mandates that each Muslim has the right and responsibility to both encourage the good as Muslims see it and to forbid the evil also as Muslims see it. So in practical terms, this usually involves individuals or uh, group action against a given behavior rather than proactive good. It's much more common to hear about forbidding the evil than it is to hear about forbidding or enjoining the good. 
Today, the evil that is most commonly targeted, targeted is the sale of, for example, the consumption of alcohol. And those who practice forbidding the evil often attack places where they believe such activities are going on. Targeting missionaries of churches also falls under this rubric. So enjoining the good is one idea that's completely incompatible with tolerance, as it's known outside of the Muslim world. Finally, a Sharia-based society, a Sunni society, perceives itself as being one that's bound together and unified. One can't stress enough the role of confusing legal mechanisms of consensus in Sunni, in Sunni Islam. And although it's uh, difficult to find a Sunni who can adequately explain it or work out what its methodology precisely is, there can be no doubt that when one examines the society as a whole, uh, consensus is one of its major bases. Groupthink and staying with the shared beliefs of the Muslims in society are a major characteristic, again, in accord with, quote, and hold fast, all of you, to the rope of Allah, and do not fall into dissension. Surah 3, Ayah 103. So because of that et uh, eternal fear of falling into sin and innovation, it's better for Sunnis to just be on the move, or, or to just not move from their, uh, their different places in society. It's not easy to work inside a society of this nature because those are, who are different from it are actually shunned or demonized rather than respected as one who, um, who would be in other societies. There's no premium in, in a Sun, uh, Sunni society for the one who stands out in the community. So what about non-Muslim minorities? Well, that raises the question of the, the minorities, or in some cases, the majorities. Uh, one should remember that while most Middle Eastern Muslim societies are practically uh, homogenous with their Christian and Jewish minorities, having died out, fled, or living in a state of persecuted fear and subjugation. This was not always the case. For at least half of the total history of Islam, non-Muslims were either a majority in many of these societies or at least constituted a, a very strong minority. Therefore, when the laws and the customs dealing with non-Muslims were laid down, they were established in a far different historical situation. Muslims are often afraid of the bulk of non-Muslims and cannot adequately impose upon them the, the Sharia and the laws that they wished at all times for fear of the rebellions from that minority. In the Quran, the key verse regarding non-Muslims is this, quote, fight those who do not, do not believe in Allah or the last day, who do not hold illicit what Allah and his messenger hold illicit, and who do not follow the religion of truth, Islam, from among those given the book until they offer up the tribute by hand and are humiliated. Surah 9, Ayah 29. On the one hand, this verse establishes the boundaries of protection for the dhimis uh, uh, that can be accorded to non-Muslims, uh, which include the Jews and the Christians and later Zoroastrians, which were out in Persia uh, in the seventh century at that time. Buddhists uh, and Hindus are also uh, uh, considered as a later part of these demons in some cases. Now, polytheists are not included. Uh, whether Hinduism is polytheism, having some 330 million gods uh, in Hinduism, uh, it was never adequately resolved by the classical Islamic legal scholars. 
since there were too many Hindus to kill, they were accepted de facto as kind of the people of the book, like the Jews and the Christians and so on. However, the key to dealing with non-Muslims was that they should, they should be humiliated ritually in order to demonstrate that they were inferior to the Muslims and that they should pay this jizya tax and tribute to the Muslims. So gradually, that, uh, gradually there developed a group of regulations known as the Pact of Omar. And uh, it was a, a treaty that supposedly negotiated between Christians of Syria, Palestine, and the Muslims uh, who had conquered them during the first wave of the Islamic conquest. Uh, the Pact of Umar, uh, basically it, it reads this way. We Christians shall not build in our cities or in their neighborhood new monasteries, churches, covenants, or monk cells, nor shall we repair by day or by night such of them as has fallen into ruin or are situated in the quarters of the Muslims. Secondly, we shall keep our gates wide open for passerbys and travelers. We shall give board and lodging to all Muslims who pass our way for three days. Thirdly, we shall not give shelter in our churches or in our dwellings to any spy, nor hide him from the Muslims. Four, we shall not teach the Quran to our children. Five, we shall not manifest our religion publicly, nor convert anyone to it. We shall not prevent any of our kin from entering Islam if they wish it. Six, we shall show respect towards the Muslims, and we shall rise from our seats when they wish, uh, wish to sit. Seven, we shall not seek to resemble the Muslims by imitating any of their garments, um, the headgear or the turban or the footwear or the parting of the hair. We shall not speak as they do, nor shall we adopt their common names of family. Eight, we shall not mount on saddles, nor shall we gird swords, nor bear any kind of arms, nor carry them on our persons. Nine, we shall not engrave Arabic inscriptions on our seals. Ten, we shall not sell fermented drink. Eleven, we shall clip the fronts of our heads. Twelve, we shall always dress in the same way wherever we may be, and we shall uh, bind a type of distinctive belt around our waists. Thirteen, we shall not display our crosses or our books in the roads or marketplace of the Muslims. We shall use only clappers in our churches very softly. We shall not raise our voices when following our dead. We shall not show lights uh, on, on, any of our, uh, on any of the roads of the Muslims or in the markets. We shall not bury our dead near the Muslims. 14. We shall not take slaves who have been allotted to the Muslims. 15. We shall not build houses overtopping the houses of the Muslims. And the tradition says, when I brought the letter to Omar, this pact of Omar that was Christians were to sign, it says, Umar added, quote, we shall not strike a Muslim, end quote. We accepted these uh, conditions for ourselves for, and for the, uh, for the people of our community and re in return receive safe conduct. If we in any way violate these undertakings for which we ourselves stand surety, we forfeit our covenant, the Demi covenant, and we become liable to the penalties uh, for, uh, for sedition. Umar ibn al-Khattab replied, sign what they ask, but add two clauses and impose them in addition to those which we have undertaken. They are, quote, 
They shall not buy anyone made a prisoner by the Muslims, and whoever strikes the Muslim with deliberate intent shall forfeit the protection of this pact, end quote. So this was uh, the protection that the Jews and the Christians accepted from the Muslims in pre-modern times. And what shocks Christians today is how many of its provisions are still in force. It is still virtually impossible for Christians to manifest their religion publicly in Muslim countries. And this is not to speak of converting Muslims to Christianity. It's virtually impossible to rebuild a church in a majority Muslim country. And again, not to speak of actually constructing a new church in the context of that country. And Christians, even where they are substantial minorities, such as Egypt, are virtually unrepresented in the upper ranks of the armed forces. So the discrimination mandated by the Sharia is still very much in force. During the time of Muhammad, there were strong social restrictions upon Muslims and non-Muslims. As a, as a result of the doctrine of tarif, remember the idea that uh, the Jews and Christians had actually changed or corrupted uh, their book, uh, maybe sometimes uh, the Muslims would say that they're taking out verses from Muhammad uh, that were uh, supposedly in the, in the Bible, they would say. But there's a very, uh, a very strong uh, paranoid aspect to the Quran. And this is reflected in many verses, um, such as uh, among the people of the book, there, uh, there are many who wish they could uh, turn you back to unbelief after you have embraced the faith. This they do out of the envy of their souls, and once the truth has become clear to them, end quote, Surah 2, Ayah 109. And Surah 2, Ayah 120, quote, Jews and Christians will not approve of you unless you follow their religion, end quote. Even worse than that, however, is the idea that unbelievers are fundamentally and richly unclean, which we can find in Surah 9, Ayah 28. O believers, the polytheists are indeed a pollution, najas, so let them not approach the sacred mosque, end quote. Many verses originally directed towards the pagans of Arabia have since the rise of Islam been directed towards Christians on account of the doctrine of the Trinity. And for all these reasons, Muslims are urged by the Quran to cut all of their social relations with the Jews and the Christians. It says, quote, O believers, take not the Jews for allies. They are allies of one another. Whoso among you takes them as allies is counted amongst their number. Surah 5, Ayah 51. While one can't say that in, actu in actuality, Muslims have followed this mandate, since obviously, uh, throughout history, many Muslims were willing to associate with Jews and Christians and call them friends. However, the idea of dis, uh, distinctive uh, to Muslims, uh, of one who, who separates out from the non-Muslims, is one that continues to have power and resonance within an, a Muslim community. So part of the reason why these doctrines of distinctiveness on the part of the Muslims were so popular was because of the military success that the Muslims achieved during the 7th and 8th centuries. Uh, they accorded to them a unique status throughout the classical world, and although part of the status was ethnically based, all the conquerors were Arabs, uh, part of it was religiously based, they were Muslims. Probably the best known tradition indicating the importance of this attitude was the following, quote, I was sent with a sword so that they would worship Allah alone, who has no partner, and my daily sustenance was placed beneath the shadow of my spear. Humiliation and contempt 
were placed upon those who opposed me, and whoever likens himself to a group becomes one of them, end quote. So in this tradition, the Muslims are presented as uh, an eternally warring community, victoriously uh, over their enemies because Allah's favor is upon them. Part of that sense of eternal victory was the distinctiveness that they maintained over the conquered people, especially Christians because of their numerical superiority. And the paranoia of the early Muslims was both an ethnic issue and a religious one. Inside the Pact of Omar, it's easy to see the numerous planks designed to ensure that Muslims do not convert to another religion. More or less, uh, it's meant that Christianity and Judaism could not be missionary religions to them. And any elements that would actually advertise Christianity, such as the public worship, the ringing of church bells, or the sounding of clappers, the reading of the Bible, let alone actual proclamation and preaching of the gospel or witnessing, were strictly, uh, were strictly forbidden. Laws concerning apostasy from Islam uh, seem to be closely linked to a, a sense that the apostate was actually betraying the tribe. Inside the Quran, there's uh, the following verse, quote, O believers, whoso among you shall apostatize from their religion, let him know that Allah will bring forth a people whom he loves and who love him, humble to the believers but mighty against the unbelievers who exert themselves in the cause of Allah and fear no blame from any quarter. Surah 5, Ayah 54. It's also significant that there's no real penalty that is accorded to the apostate uh, uh, to the apostate from the Quranic text. It seems that he's under uh, Allah's displeasure, but there's no mandate to actually kill him. And that is not the case from the Hadith literature, where we find uh, that the straightforward injunction comes forth. It says, quote, whoever changes his religion, kill him, end quote. While today, the laws against apostasy are on the books in some Muslim countries, uh, Morocco, Algeria, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan, among others. In most cases, the law against apostasy uh, from Islam is simply carried out on an individual basis. The attitude of the common Muslim is that the apostates deserve death. The populace is all too willing uh, to kill them to allow others uh, or allow others to do it. It could be family members or it could be uh, friends and so on, but they end up killing the apostates. There's no doubt that this fact constitutes the single most difficult barrier to mission among Muslims and is concurrently the most obvious block to any real freedom in the Muslim world. Without choice with regard to religion, there's no real freedom. Numerous uh, converts to Christianity, like in Nigeria, need to remain oftentimes within strong Christian centers in churches, like in Lagos and Ibadan uh, in the south of Nigeria. Freedom of expression is, is another problem for the Sharia system. Inside the Quran, there is a frequent negative comment concerning the scoffers, those who made fun of the revelation of the Quran. Although it's not true to say that there is no sense of humor in Islam, there is a, a huge entertainment section of, of the traditions uh, called the adab. Uh, there are very firm limits within the system as to the whole of that religion. Religious figures and teachings should not be made fun of. And it's clear that such an attitude is in complete opposition to freedom of speech and raises serious difficulties uh, for, even seri uh, for even serious critique of what is perceived as the sacred. 
the Quran says, O believers, do not take for allies those who took your religion as a subject of mockery and entertainment among, uh, among those granted the book before you or among the unbelievers. Fear Allah if you truly believe. When you call the prayer, they take it as a subject of mockery and entertainment, for they are people of no understanding. Surah 5, Ayah 57. The seriousness of Muhammad is an issue that is frequently commented upon in the proofs of the prophethood literature. And there are questions about whether he ever actually laughed, uh, considered to be beneath his dignity, <laughs> or merely smiled, uh, the usual consensus. Therefore, jokes about him or about Islam can cause negative or hostile reactions among the Muslims that are incomprehensible to the outsiders. The Sharia system uh, is a non-democratic system in which Islam reigns supreme. Conversion is allowed in only one direction, towards Islam. Freedom of speech and expression is severely limited. The Sharia system is one where Muslims can uh, arrogate to themselves the right to judge what's right and what, and, and what is wrong with regard to other peoples, uh, whatever they may do, their behavior, and interfere in such, that, in such behavior. Although a, a great uh, deal of what is object, objected, uh, objectively speaking criminal, such as killing, robbery, and other obvious crimes, is in fact suppressed by the application of the Sharia. And this is accomplished through the privilege, uh, privileging of Muslims and Islam to such an extent that uh, effectively greater crimes are committed by its application. And Muslim criminals are usually not dealt with in any effective manner. They, uh, and that can best be seen with regard to the treatment of women. When we look at women under uh, Sharia, uh, the status is the, is the second area where uh, the Sharia uh, uh, implies uh, in, inequality or enshrines inequality. As we've seen from the study of Muhammad and the Quran, there are many unfavorable traditions in the Hadith literature. And these traditions uh, encapsulate attitudes towards women that were current among the traditionalists. However, as we speak of about the Sharia treatment of women, we move into the discussion of actual laws that can cause suffering because of the perceived secondary or inferior status of the women. Uh, probably the most influential uh, verse in that regard is Surah, two, uh, Surah 4, Ayah 34. Uh, men, it says, quote, men are legally responsible for women inasmuch as Allah has preferred some over, uh, over others in bounty and because of what they spend from their wealth. Thus, virtuous women are obedient and preserve their trust, such as Allah wishes them to be preserved. And those, uh, those you fear may rebel, admonish, and abandon them in their beds and smack them or beat them if they obey you, seek no other way against them, end quote. So this verse states clearly that men are preferred to women and are responsible for them. The, although this is a couched in economic terms, it's also apparent that such a, a benefit is bought at the complete price of her freedom. She is actually beaten. So the attitude that God uh, essentially prefers men to women is apparent from the Hadith where it says, quote, the majority of the people in hell are women. And the tradition says that, that Muhammad was in a vision, was walked over a razor-sharp bridge, he looked down into hell, and it was filled with women. This inequality uh, is enshrined 
in Allah's word by recourse to the economic superiority of men that apparently is immutable. In other words, it's because women cannot work that they are inferior to men. And they are inferior to men because they cannot or do not work. Thus, women are totally dependent upon their husbands. But usually today, the most controversial aspects of the verse is the punishment that's associated with a woman's rebellion. The punishment of quote-unquote beating is one that is clear from the verse and one which contemporary Muslim translators usually, usually feel quite uncomfortable with, as you can imagine. Some prominent examples are uh, Abdullah Yusuf Ali. He, they actually add to the text, stating, uh, when you read it in the English language, uh, quote, um, and last, beat them, in, an, in parentheses, lightly. Beat them lightly. Of course, this doesn't say that in the Arabic, lightly. It just, uh, they're just inferencing there. Uh, Muhammad Marmaduke Piktal, another uh, famous translator, says, quote, and scourge them. So it doesn't say beat them, it says, and scourge them. A little less clear. Uh, Majik Fakhri uh, says, beat them. Uh, Muhammad Farouk Azam Malik says, and finally, if necessary, beat them, end quote. And Malana Wahidun Khan uh, finally, uh, says, uh, uh, finally hit them, and in parentheses it says, lightly. Most interesting, uh, Ahmed Ali actually retranslates the entire selection to be, quote, as for women, you feel are averse, talk to them persuasively, then leave them alone in bed without molesting them, in parentheses, and go to bed with them, in parentheses, when they are willing, end quote. So that uh, sometimes is a very creative reinterpretation of this verse, coupled with other attempts by feminists to get around the plain meaning of the text, tell us much about the defensive attitude towards this verse and, uh, and are more about the translator's uh, um, difficulty in, in grappling with these attitudes and so on in relationship to the text itself. It's worth noting that a number of these translators, such as uh, Yusuf Ali and Ahmed Ali uh, and others, cite the tradition which states, quote, do not beat Allah's handmaidens, Imallah, end quote. It's, of course, intellectually dishonest for Ahmed Ali, who just uh, finished telling us in the Quranic translation that the verb daraba uh, does not mean, quote, to beat, but, quote, to go to bed with a woman, in brackets, to then inform us that this new and unusual interpretation is proved by a tradition that uses the verb daraba to indicate the prohibition of beating. The full, uh, the full tradition of, quote, do not beat Allah's handmaiden reads, quote, the messenger of Allah said, do not beat Allah's handmaidens or concubines, in parentheses. So Omar came to the messenger of Allah and said, women are rebelling against their husbands. So he gave him a concession with regard to beating them. Many women began circling the family, the wives of Muhammad, complaining about their husbands. And so the prophet said, many women are circling the family of Muhammad, complaining about their husbands, and these are not the best of you. And the next tradition uh, goes on and clearly, clearly states, quote, the prophet said a man will not be asked by Allah concerning the beating of his wife, end quote. Usually this kind of misogynist traditions will be included in sections on, quote, the sexual rights of a man over his wife, end quote, and involve such gems as, uh, as 
quote, among the, the rights of the husband over his wife is that of his nostrils ran with blood, pus, and purulent matter, and she licked it with her tongue, and she would not be giving him his due, and if it was right for a human to bow to a human, I would have ordered the wife to bow to her husband when he goes into her for intercourse because of God's or Allah's preferring him over her, end quote. So this tradition can be found in serious discussions about the sin a woman incurs when refusing intercourse to her husband. What's probably most interesting about the above tradition is that it contains the idea that a woman should bow down to a man because God prefers him to her. It's striking that such an idea would be employed within Islam as worshiping or bowing down to another creature rather than the creator is the fundamental sin. And the fact that it would be employed here is indicative of the weight being placed upon the relative position of the man versus the woman with regard to their status. This lower status is reflected in everything that a woman does. She incurs a sin if she leaves the house without her husband's permission. And if she performs any religious rites, such as fasting, without his permission, they're not accepted. And in the list of grave sins by pre-modern scholars, such as al-Dahabi and Ibn Hajar al-Haythami, both states clearly that the first thing that a woman will be asked about the Day of Judgment is how she treated her husband. Prominent traditions even state that, quote, whenever uh, whenever a woman... Uh, or a wife harms her husband in this world, his wife from the, the Huris, or the women of the paradise, those 70 virgins that are up in paradise and so on, says, do not harm him. May Allah fight you. He is only a guest with you, and he is almost ready to leave you and come to us, unquote. So we have lots of interesting traditions that form this idea and worldview related to women. Probably the most dangerous laws in Islam, however, for the woman are the laws concerning fornication based upon materials in Surah 24, Ayah 1 through 34. And this is because although the Quranic material mandates four witnesses to prove a case of fornication against the women in Surah 24, Ayah 4 and verse 12, the fact is that merely the accusation against a woman or the suspicion of committing fornication could very well lead to the so-called honor killings. Um, although the wording in the Quran is balanced towards both men and women, the fact is, is that throughout the Muslim world, the onus of the zina, the honor killing, falls exclusively upon the women. It would be possible to see that the zina laws as draconian but fair if men were to be convicted and stoned or flogged in the same manner as women are. But they're not. Even when there is the offer of testing DNA, such as, as, as in Nigeria, to find the father of an accused fornicator, the offer was not accepted. It goes without saying that there are numerous fatwas and books of, uh, dangerous, um, that are dangers of women working in the workplace, because obviously that will lead to immorality and loss of control over the woman. Materials of this type Uh, reinforce the traditional attitudes that are fostered among Sharia systems and make it clear that there's no equality for women in the Muslim world today as long as it's in place. It's not easy to to know where to start when critiquing um, the present-day fatwas, and we need to turn to that uh, now. 
because of the continual growth of uh, Islam and the constant new situations in which the Muslims find themselves, there's an ongoing growth of fatwas. This fact has led to the appearance of large numbers of ridiculous uh, fatwas, of which many Muslims are embarrassed. In uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, fatwas were given um, discussing the orbiting of the earth by the sun. And one can only say that a, a plain reading of the Quran, this is actually possible, but it would be pretty willfully ignorant of modern science to actually accept that, and it would take only a place uh, uh, still stuck in, in, in the mid, uh, medieval period to actually accept it. Some major bizarre fatwas must be listed in order to communicate uh, the level of ridiculous, uh, ridiculousness to which this process has descended. Number one, probably the most bizarre fatwa in the recent past was issued in May 2007 by Izzat Atiyah of Al-Azhar University in, e in Egypt, the, the uh, center for Sunni uh, learning, who's seeking some method by which women, uh, men and women who were not married to each other could work together without contradicting the Sharia. Um, alighted upon this idea that the men could suckle from the women's breast five times and thereupon the, they would be milk-related, uh, under which circumstances they could be alone together and not have any danger of being married. Quite aside from the ludicrous idea of, growing, of grown men asking women to do this, which uh, itself in a, in a strict uh, society kind of boggles the imagination, it's difficult to imagine that this would stifle the sexual desires on the part of men. At the Al-Azhar, uh, they, they quickly disowned the writers of these fatwas and they fired them, although they quickly rehired him as well. However, it's worth noting that such fatwas represent a sincere, although bizarre attempt on the part of contemporary ulama to find some loophole within the Sharia that will allow the commonplace behavior. Secondly, Saudi Arabian uh, religious authorities have often branded Western entertainment figures or symbols as non-Islamic, such as the fatwa against Pokemon. Uh, however, in 2008, in August of 2008, Muhammad al-Munajid, who, uh, who was of all things a former Saudi diplomat, actually called Mickey Mouse a soldier of Satan and that mice in general must be killed in all cases. Thirdly, in 2006, Rashad Hassan Khalil of Al-Azhar uh, ruled that nudity during intercourse between spouses invalidates the marriage. <clears throat> Again, drawing on the laughter of many, uh, were Aisha states, quote, I never looked at the prophet's genitals at all, and I never actually saw his genitals ever. Fourth, in July of 2010, the Diabandi Seminary in Pakistan uh, near New Delhi, uh, India, issued a fatwa forbidding adolescent girls from riding bicycles. In a related tradition, the well-known television personality and Sheikh Yusuf Karadawi issued a fatwa permitting girls to ride bicycles. However, it's, uh, it, it, if it is likely that the girl will indeed lose her hymen if she rides on the bicycle and no measure can prevent her from doing so, then the Muslim girl ought to be stopped from doing this so that the people do not think ill of her, end quote. Uh, number five, it goes without saying that there are a number of fatwas against Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, and any non-Muslim holiday. Uh, 
Ibn Uthaymin, the prominent Saudi cleric in February 11, 2000, stated, quote, celebrating Valentine's Day is not permissible because, firstly, it is an, it is an innovated ho- uh, holiday, the Bida, that has no basis in Sharia. Secondly, it calls to love uh, and passion. Third, it calls to keeping one's heart busy with nons- uh, nonsense matter which contradict the guidance of the righteous predecessors. Uh, number, number six, in November 2008, the Malaysian uh, National Fatwa Council ruled that women who dressed like men, tomboys, could not be allowed to continue to dress in this manner as it would lead to lesbianism, nor could she have uh, short hair or wear pants. Uh, seventh, the permanent uh, committee of fatwa and research in Saudi Arabia ruled concerning the beard that anybody who mocks it and compares it to pubic hair, he is guilty of a great sin, warranting his apostasy from Islam. This is because making fun of anything which is proven by the book of Allah and the Sunnah of Muhammad is considered an act of disbelief and apostasy from Islam. End quote. Number eight, a uh, fatwa against football based upon the law of love or loyalty and hatred of disassociation on the basis of Islam, calling for differentiation between Muslims and non-Muslims must be reproduced full here. Let me read it for you. Quote, in the name of Allah, the merciful and benevolent, one, international terminology that heretics use, such as foul, penalty, corner, goal, out, and others should be abandoned and not said. Whoever says them should be punished and ejected from the game. Number two, do not call foul and stop the game if someone falls and sprains a hand or foot or the ball touches his hand. And do not give a yellow or a red card to whoever was responsible for the injury or tackle. Instead, it should be adjudicated according to the Sharia rules uh, concerning broken bones and injuries. Number three, do not follow the heretics, the Jews and the Christians, and especially evil America, regarding the number of players. Do not play with 11 people. Add to this number or decrease it. Number four, play in your regular clothes or your pajamas or something like that, but not colored shorts and numbered t-shirts, because shorts and t-shirts are, are not Muslim clothing. Rather, they are heretical and Western clothing, so beware of imitating their fashion. Number five, If you have fulfilled these conditions and intend to play soccer, play to strengthen the body in order to better uh, struggle in the way of Allah and on high to prepare the body for when it is actually called to jihad. Soccer is not for passing time or for the thrill of a so-called victory. Number six, do not play in two halves, rather play in one half or three halves in order to completely differentiate yourselves from the heretics, the corrupted and the disobedient. Number seven, if neither of you beats the other or wins, quote unquote, as it's called, and neither puts the leather between the posts, do not add extra time or penalties. Instead, leave the field because winning with extra time and penalty kick, uh, kicks, is, uh, the penalty kicks is the pinnacle of imitating heretics and international rules. Number eight, young crowds should not gather to watch when you play because if you are there for the sake of sports and strengthening your bodies as you claimed, why would people watch you? You should make them join your physical fitness and jihad in preparation. Or you should say, quote, 
go proselytize and seek out morally re- reprehensible acts to uh, acts in the markets and the press and leave us to our physical fitness, end quote. Number nine, you should spit in the face of whoever puts the ball between the posts or uprights and then runs in order to get his friends to follow him and hug him like players in America or France do. And you should punish him for what is the relationship between celebrating, hugging, and kissing and the sports that you're practicing. Number 10, you should use two posts instead of, th- of three pieces of wood or steel that you erect in order to put the ball between them, meaning that you should remove the crossbar in order to not imitate the heretics and in order to be entirely distinct from the soccer system's despotic international rules. Number 11, do not do what is called substitution. That is taking the place of someone who has fallen because this is the practice of the heretics in America and elsewhere, end quote. Although it's possible to continue continuously with these amusing and idiotic fatwas, such as the Egyptian Mufti Ali Goma's proclamation that drinking the urine of Muhammad, uh, of Muhammad was a great blessing, or, uh, or as uh, dangerous as the regular fatwas against the polio vaccination in Nigeria or Pakistan. The point is simply that the process of issuing fatwas is completely out of control and uh, demonstrates the inability of Sunni Islam to cope with the demands of the contemporary world. The irony is that every single one of the ridiculous fatwas above were both issued by very high-ranking clerics in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, India, and Malaysia, and they're all based upon the relevant hadiths. Essentially, these fatwas are what uh, results when one takes the medieval Hadith literature, which was designed to be viewed by only a small number of sympathetic scholars, and place it before a worldwide community of Muslims that have no idea of how irrelevant and bizarre it is, and then use that Hadith literature in order to deal with contemporary life. And if you want more information about this subject, um, it'll be published in an upcoming book coming out uh, by myself on Christian Apologetics to Islam. Thank you very much.